Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-hosts, Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. I know we're a couple days over this week, uh, just schedules adjusting and everything like that. So we're coming to you on a Thursday as opposed to a Tuesday. But those of you that listen after the fact don't care anyways, so it's fine. Um, yeah, Ken got the intro right, so I'm excited. We're excited to have Ron on today to talk. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, he was just thankful that I was uh, still alive after I had to cancel the last time we had him scheduled. So I'm grateful I'm alive too. That's all. So um, as far as other stuff that's going on, other announcements, uh, for those of you that did not hear, uh, we will be at Black Hat teaching our uh, secure code review course, a special edition. Uh, I think it's called Next Level Bug Hunting Code Edition, right? Because it has to be cool for the Black Hat crowd. Uh, so the slides will all be in black because, you know, at the very least, right, Ken? That's that's all we do is paint <laughs> things up. <laughs> yep, that's that's, no, that's all we yeah, do. That's all we do. Yeah, there'll be some uh, extra Black Hat uh, style things within that course. Ken and I have been kind of bouncing some eyes, some things back and forth that we want to to target for that course. So if you'll be at Black Hat, please consider us. Um, if you haven't taken the Secure Code Review course or you want to know more about it, please you know jump on in. Uh, we'd love to talk. Uh, other than that, I will be at Beside San Francisco in a couple of weeks uh, doing a secure code review workshop. Uh, that one will be more hands-on, uh, more of a shortened version of what we do, um, and more focused on actually finding bugs in code. I think outside of that, though, uh, Ken, what's your schedule look like? I know we'll you know get into it in here in a little bit, but what's your schedule yeah, look like? Yeah, I was actually mentioning it to Ron, which will get into this because Ron's one of the co-founders of uh, Locomoco. But uh, yeah, I, I think I might actually end up going to Locomoco this year. Um, I was on the fence uh, just because of um, like schedule and last year was a heavy travel. But yeah, I think I'm going to go do go do Locomoco. So it should be fun. Now, now what conference. is Locomoco? Yeah, if you haven't <laughs> heard of it, <laughs> it's a security conference in Hawaii. Yeah, I think this has been the longest running <laughs> troll on you, Seth, that we've <laughs> We've done so. I, I, yeah, I know. Yeah, now I just troll myself on it because I really want to go, and I don't know if again if schedules are going to align this year given the week that they that it is. So we'll see. I'm, it's still up in the air for me as well. But. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, well, hey, if you can make it, it'd be really fun. Get the uh, the the yeah. get some good education. Get the family out. It's a good time. It's like yep. a really good time. So cool. So. I guess we should. Is there any news that we need to go over? Or were you like good there? There was one thing. Um, okay. So I, I know we love Port Swigger, right? On the podcast. We mm-hmm. always talk about James Kettle. We always talk about like the research that they're doing. Uh, the, you know, top 10 from last year, they're actually digging into. I know it's more focused on kind of the bug hunting, or the bug bounty portion of application security, but it's always super interesting to look at from our perspective. There was a new blog post today from, Port Swigger, uh, not from James Kettle. This one's actually from Gareth Hayes on Dom clobbering. Mm. Uh, and we'll, we'll post the link up there. I just like I just started to get into it. I wanted to bring it up because I don't have a good uh, understanding of necessarily what the attack is. I know it's been around for a couple of years, but I think it's one that we, we should probably highlight, right? It's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies again, right? Hey, we teach everybody about XSS and everybody, guess what? They find XSS, you know? 
Um, but it, like something else that's popping up is that Dom clobbering attack. And so I just, I wanted to bring it up. Ken, have you, have you had familiarity with it? Have you dug into it at all? Or Ron as well, right? Like I know we haven't introduced you, but you, you can say something at any point, right? <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with it, Ken, at all? Dom clobbering? No, I, when you first said it, I'm going to be completely honest. I thought you said dog clobbering i was like why are you clobbering dogs you monster so but... i need to enunciate better i will work on that ken no i think you still have a little bit of that 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 yeah. sinus stuff going on from yeah your yeah. original uh coronavirus oh, sure. so now, now you now you're saying that i'm nasally got it thanks <laughs> is that a whole to go uh, by the moniker of uh, mutation-based xss the dom clobbering or is that right. a separate distinct issue it's hard with some of these terms right yeah, there was. Did you, did you see the cross-site scripting in Google's homepage this year, or I guess it was last year now? But they had that mutation-based vulnerability. Yeah, uh, I think I'm it's, to recall. I think it, yeah, I think it's similar to that, right? Because it seems to be, hey, we can overwrite specific elements of the DOM, you know, with an XSS style attack, right? So it's not necessarily I'm trying to do JavaScript. It's just I'm manipulating you know, elements, like I'm inside of a form element and I may be manipulating, uh, you know, the input ID or something else to expose data, right? A content injection attack, not necessarily a script injection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's more content injection, at least from what I understand of it. Um, I feel like I saw, saw one presentation on it, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what the defense is. I'm not, I'm not up on that. What the. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's the same, you know, you're, you're still, um, you're, you're still trying to protect the data in the input as it's coming in. You're validating input, you're, you know, encoding output um, because it is targeting the DOM, right? It's targeting the browser specifically. So it is a client side attack. It's not a server side attack. It's still um, pretty straightforward in the example they show though, which is just basically like creating an element that meaning like meaning, meaning to create an element and then taking like uh taking some URL and then appending uh, that in, well, creating basically this script object, right? So you've got your script object, then you append some details like a URL, and then you append that use append child to that. But then you would, I guess, presumably have the href under control. And so that would be the part that then is appended. And so malicious JavaScript is uh, placed within it, it looks like. So it's, yeah, it's still, I mean, it's still pretty, Pretty much XSS, right? Like, I mean, content injection, whatever you want to call it. It's it's not this example here. I'm sure there's cooler ones, but this one's pretty pretty straightforward. I feel like, and like for yeah. SD that they have got like form. Yeah, it still doesn't seem. I don't know. It's cool, but it's maybe I'm just like reading the wrong article too. Are you are you reading the blog post from today? I don't. I don't think I am. Okay, that's the problem. Yeah, it seems yeah. like he's got some new. I mean, he's definitely uh, pulling in script attacks, right? But I right. think it, it's almost like he's attaching them based on the DOM, as opposed to just writing strict HTML, right? So, yeah, it's one that I think we need to probably talk about a little bit. It looks like they've got a couple of interactive DOM labs in Web Security Academy that they've built out as well. So it might be an interesting one to. Oh my god! To dig their, blog, into some more. Yeah. their blog is giving my OCD like 
a run for its money. It's the, have you, oh my God. It's just like all these different icons and different sizes and shapes everywhere. It's just driving me nuts. I don't think I can look at this anymore. <laughs> uh, anyways. All right. Yeah, but I mean, it's content injection is content injection, right? It sounds like you're just, in this case, you're just overriding some elements on the page. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lewis uh, on the YouTube chat was saying it's using HTML to create JavaScript elements, right? So it is HTML injection. So it's a very succinct way to put it. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Lewis. That, that, that helps yeah. clear it up actually for us quite a bit. So <laughs> considering I had just dove into the, uh, the blog post, it, you know, that helps. So I almost um, want to share my screen just so people can see what I'm, yeah. You know what? Oh, I don't know. She's easy with two monitors. That did that now. Um, let me see if I can application window just so people can see this. Can you see that? Like no. that would drive. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know how screen sharing works then. <laughs> Whatever. Super professional. Yeah. <laughs> so Ron, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So so far we've we've talked about uh, requests. What are we talking about? We're talking about clobbering. That's the first thing we discussed. Uh, what about the new version of Node that just came out with the security update? Have you guys you guys clocked that one? You see that go by? I saw no, it. Did not I saw it come through. But yeah, let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit. Like you know, what was the like? What, what were the highlights on that one that you that you saw? Well, like, what what they, yeah, I think it's part of a larger theme, which is you know. Historically, you would use a web server um, that was built by someone else that tip, you know, maybe had a lot of eyeballs on it. Uh, these days, people have been building their own web servers using Node.js. So typically, you have like a, you know, Node.js server that you authored. And yeah. if you have a situation, uh, the underlying library, it looks like has uh, some type of um, request smuggling type attack that's now possible based on the way that it parses the headers in the request. So you can smuggle an additional request if you've authored your own web server. So if you don't have Nginx or something else in front of, of your node servers, um, you might be vulnerable to this if you haven't upgraded. Interesting. Yeah, that's that security release they just were talking about, right? That's yeah, it just came out, I think. It was, it was delayed. It was supposed to be out, I think, earlier this week. And then there was some chatter about it. And then I think it's out now. Okay. So it seems significant. So upgrading the your node engine version to a version that has a protection is the goal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It says it's talking about the stricter HTTP parsing in there in that in this release, right? Yeah, it's like three different security bugs. I think the, the request smuggling looked like the most significant one to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and there's been a lot of focus on that, right? You, you you look at again the stuff that's come out. You know that James Kettle has been talking about with request smuggling, and if there's an issue where it's not handling that quite right within the node, yeah, within Node itself, then that's yep, then it's issue so yeah I'm trying to find the actual ones that uh, the cves that are that are there but i'm not seeing it right now so there they do link to in the so in the link i just posted it shows links to the commit that fit fix the issues like trailing headers and we're able to like append additional content so that's pretty interesting oh, yeah. yeah yeah it's got some cool yeah. unit tests in there i love seeing when people write unit tests for like I love reading security centric unit tests. Those are always fun. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've been involved with it. And I know, uh, Ken, you deal with all this, this all the time, but been, you know, helping somebody out with, uh, you know, the running their bug bounty, uh, 
submissions, right. Or, you know, their intake. And that's been the biggest problem that this, this specific organization has had is they fix it and then it doesn't get into the release train. Right. And, you know, they reintroduce it cause they weren't testing for it. Right. So, this is one yeah. issue I always think about when people fork libraries and you're like, you know, that's great and all you want to make your little changes to the fork, but you know, maybe consider a pull request to the main fork or to the main, the, to the, the main repo. Cause you're always going to be behind and you're not going to get those security fixes in there. And like, ultimately, you know, it's going to end up being kind of unmaintained, but uh, you yeah. know what I should do. Can I do a proper intro for Ron Paris, by the way? Yeah, let's do that. We're, we're, only, proper... we're only 15 minutes in. It's fine. Go I like yeah, it. yeah, right. Um, That's and... your style. I know this is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, there's no shame in that, I guess. Um, should be a little bit, but there isn't. Anyway, so you're a security engineer. So Ron is a security engineer at MPM, which is uh, really awesome because we do have questions. We're going to get into that. That's really, uh, really something we want to focus on as you're working at NPM. Um, but you've worked, it looks like all over the place, Synopsys, Cyber Tool Belt, NT Objectives. Uh, I remember using NT Objectives. Um, you, let's see, you, the, the, the list goes on, but. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I think the most important part is the stuff I'm doing at MPM now, right? Probably the most impactful stuff I've done in my career is what's happening now. Well, I would, I would also th throw in there that you've co-founded both the OWASP AppSec Cali conference that we love to go to that I didn't go to, uh, Seth, sorry, this year, but I usually try to make it out there. And then uh, Sec, which is the security conference in Hawaii, Seth, I want to make what, sure wait, that you know. That? Yeah, okay. yeah, it's in Hawaii. So you know, okay. I don't, yeah, those are great conferences and I promote them and think people should go to them. I'm actually, I'm doing a training this year at Locomocosec, so folks who want to check that out, you can see what I'm doing there. But uh, I'm kind of the Dave Mustaine, uh, if it makes any sense, of computer security conferences. Do you guys remember Dave? No. So, so for, the, for Metallica fans out there, when they formed Metallica, there was a guy named Dave Mustaine, and he was just there for the first like album and a half, and then he was <laughs> off. And they, he started a band called Megadeth. But yeah, that's kind of that's kind of been my deal. Is I I get involved in a con like Apps of California. You know, I'm there the first couple of years and. Yeah, I support and I appreciate it, but I'm not even currently an organizer at Locomocosec. I uh, I was just involved those formative couple of years. Neil's really the man behind that conference, and it's his vision. And I uh, I got involved with Neil because of I was running the Orange County OWASP chapter at one point. Okay, Neil was yeah. a really active member of that, and he had a vision to kind of take things in a different direction. As far as we had Builder Breaker Defender, that was the mandate with OWASP, mm. and Neil was like, "Let's just like Builder." And I was like, "Yeah, Builder's cool." <laughs> So uh, I think Apps of California was his vision to like move things in that direction. And then he had the vision to move it even further in that direction with Manico and start the Locomocosec conference. Yeah. I just sort of tagged along. For the first I think I've years. said this before, but like the Locomocosec conference last year, I ended up with a notebook and a pen just writing down a bunch of stuff, which I haven't done. And I'll also using like tweets as sort of a way to, to capture the most important bits to bring back to the podcast and work. Um, but like, I don't get that much anymore. I don't go to conferences and sit there and talks and take notes. That's the one place though. That's the one conference that I absolutely do because, you know, there's folks from Google, Dropbox, just a bunch of different companies that are doing. And also one thing that was too cool too, was like, uh, I think that was the, maybe the first year where they had the uh, fun capture folks on there. They might have them the second year too, but, um, that was really cool just to see like what their processes and how that, how that all works. So 
in terms of like a useful conference, especially if you're on a blue team or you're building products. Yeah. I like highly recommend it because it's, it's note taking worthy. It's the best way yeah. to put it. I learn multiple things yeah. every year for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I don't know, like that, that's one of the reasons that actually like you talk about helping build out AppSec Cali as well, Ron, but that's one of the things that I found there as well is that the talks aren't like when I go to a security conference, most of the AppSec talks are very basic, right? It's like, oh, you know, AppSec 101, how do we break things? How do we, you know, XSS or maybe, you know, there might be some bug bounty stuff that's in there that's, that's, that's kind of interesting. But from a defender perspective or somebody that's working in the industry, it doesn't, they don't get super technical, right? Um, I, I know they're trying to improve that and, you know, things like the Blue Team Village and the AppSec Village at DEF CON, you know, some of that content they're trying to push a little bit further. But given the nature of the security people that go to those conferences, it's a lot harder to have those conversations, right? It just is, as opposed to something like AppSec Cali, where it's mostly OWASP members, it's mostly people that are working in the industry in a ProdSec or AppSec capacity. We see, yeah, I, like at least me personally, I see talks that are more relevant to what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis and not just good reminders, but realistically, hey, we're pushing the edge. Like, you know, I, I keep cool. thinking back, back to Clint's talk and other things like that, but. It, it's interesting, you so. know, like one thing, I, I, I forget who I'm quoting here, but you know, the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. I always like to think about that. So depending on where you are and what organization you're in, you, you're gonna have different relevant needs. But I think yep. that, yeah, like uh, Locomoco Stack is definitely a version of a future, right? Of where things might be going for security folks. And, you know, DEF CON is obviously a large community. I got, I remember I did my first pen test back in like 2001. And I remember somebody asked me to do it because we were working on a platform that was considered relatively securely coded. And I couldn't see the connection. Like I said, so we have a securely coded application that, you know, we maintain and you want us to do what? Like in the middle of the night, go and try to break into your network and like with no knowledge of your code base. Are you sure we're the right people? And they said, well, it pays $10,000 a day. And I said, we're the right people for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, but, you know, then I went on to work with some friends to build some security tools to automate a lot of what vulnerability assessment and pen testing is. And I spent, you know, 10 years on that. I thought that would be an exercise in awareness and that everybody would get the message, right? Like there's vulns and we got to fix them and we got code fixed. But, you know, I feel like the, the number of pen testers in the market now is probably at its all-time high. Yeah. So we're... We're we're not moving we're not moving away from previous history. Those histories are going to exist as current for a while, and then there's going to be a group of us doing other things, like worrying about product security, and eventually others will will join us worrying about that aspect. So. Yeah, no, and that makes sense, right? Yeah, as the security industry grows up, I, I mean, you even think you think about it now compared to 10, 15 years ago, and you know there's. It's it's starting to silo. There's different aspects, right? Back then, you were just a security person, right? There wasn't, you know, you were expected to, you know, implement firewall rules and then actually go pen test after. The, you know what I mean? There, there there wasn't quite this clear separation between engineers and analysts and pen testers and other things. That's that's happened over the last couple of years, but uh, yeah. So so I I think it makes sense that we're gonna we're gonna keep splintering until we've reached I don't know some sort of panacea of or you know saturation of the security market but i i still i still feel like we're pretty 
well, we're pretty immature, right? What I remember is the cost to do a change and the amount of risk associated with change was very high back yeah. then. And so you needed to have like an exploitable vulnerability or weakness that you could prove. And you really needed to be able to prove that out so that you could drive that change. And now the cost of change is very low. You know, but organizations that are agile at least can easily change their software. So now it's more like, well, it's not about so much about creating the, the fear and the awareness through pen testing. It's more about just letting the developers know what the secure coding patterns are and then helping them to make the changes and get the new versions of the apps out. Yeah. Yeah, that makes kind of sense. boring. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it is, but it's not right. Like, I, I feel like we find more interesting vulns that way, right? Like the stuff that we're able to tease out, like in the code review process, as opposed to, you know, just banging on an app and trying every every possible out input that's in there. Um, they become a lot more interesting, or the ones that come out of like the bug bounty programs, right? The stuff that actually pays out well is usually a super novel attack, rather than just, hey, I found XSS in this. Um, but then I, I like I also have that whole cynical part of me as well, and apparently I'm very like opinionated today, so we'll just go with it. <laughs> but there's the, the cynical part of me as well that I walk into so many organizations that are still stuck in that mindset from 15 years ago, right? Yeah. It's great. It's great to go to Locomocosec and you know apps at Cali, and I'm you know we're talking to people from GitHub and Microsoft and you know uh, you know Netflix and Segment and all those guys, but that is not the majority of the clients that I deal with, the majority I'm dealing with are like, hey, we do agile. And I'm like, no, you really don't, right? Like just because you call it agile doesn't mean that you're releasing daily. With the three month sprints, right? We're agile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, we have two week sprints. I'm like, yeah, but you're only releasing every three months. This is not agile. Okay. Yeah, so the cost of change is high. Yeah, so yeah. they're not living yeah. in the same future. No, they're they're not. They're not. I mean, they're they're getting pulled into it for sure. But then even some of like the smaller, like small startups and things like that that aren't Silicon Valley based, I see the same thing happening, right? They're using a, you know, they're outsourcing half of their development to some firm that, you know, outsources half of that to India. <laughs> and and the way that it works is they're all structured around that waterfall methodology. And so it's very difficult to actually institute those changes. Um, so like the pen test, when we come in and do that on a yearly basis is still that, oh crap, what are they going to find? This is what we're working on for the next three to six months because, because they're still stuck in that, in that mindset. And I, like, I don't know how to change that. Right. From as an outsider, it's very difficult. Right? Like I'll tell you a weird, a weird place that I've been living that where I'm experiencing these two cultures is I, I volunteer as part of the Node.js Foundation Security Work Group. Are you guys familiar with this project? Okay. Only yeah. because you told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got involved in it in kind of an interesting way. Just a brief background. Uh, Jim Manico tapped me uh, a couple of years ago to write a course for Synopsys on um, re secure React code development and uh, how to write secure code using the Express framework. And as I was writing these two courses for Synopsys, I was just reviewing third-party components and noticing small vulnerabilities. And I was looking for a place to report them. And I found uh, the Node Security Workgroup is a group of triagers, uh, Liren Tall and others, who basically will take these reports and then they'll work with the maintainer to get the fix out. And they'll do the whole embargo period and responsible disclosure and all these things. So if you find a vulnerability in a third-party component, one of the places you could send the report is uh, the Node.js Foundation Security Workgroup. And I, I was reporting vulnerabilities and it seemed like they had a backlog and they needed some help. So I joined them and I've been sitting in there and looking at that inbox and, and doing some triage of vulnerabilities from that ecosystem. And it's a very interesting situation because you have these open source developers who are strictly devs 
in a lot of cases. And then you have these folks that are more like the, it's on the hacker one platform. And so the hacker one platform, you know, that's mostly offense, offensive security folks. And so they're reporting it kind of, Hey, there's an issue. But the interesting thing is they're reporting it in a library, which they don't usually do. Like usually they're attacking a live application. And then they're, they're telling the developer like, Hey, if I call your library in this way, it's vulnerable. And the developer's going, well, you're holding it wrong, right? Like Steve Jobs with the iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, you're kind of, I'm kind of in the middle of this. Like I'm going to for sure going to get some of these wrong, right? Where I'm either siding with the developer and saying, yeah, you know, you shouldn't call it like that. If you're calling, you know, that SQL raw method, it's going to be injectable. Or I'm siding with the attacker and saying, yeah, it's not obvious that you took their string and used it in a, like a sensitive parser context that caused arbitrary code execution. So it's like this interesting world to get to kind of, to these two groups. I actually had that exact situation with a, a an NPM uh, package where it was basically trying to be flexible so that you could have different OAuth provider service, servers listed. And uh, like we can talk about the merits of that nonsense <laughs> at a different time. But um, because of that, if like you're taking that as a parameter from the user and the user just like, didn't provide it to you or gave you, no, just didn't provide it to you and it was an empty string. It would actually throw an error, but the error would have the OAuth client ID and secret and some other relevant details. Uh, so it's like, in that point, is it that, that you know, I, I think personally, obviously the library shouldn't be doing that clearly. Like there's no reason to leak those secrets there. Um, and echo them back to the user. But at the same time, like that's not the most secure usage. So it is like one of those weird middle ground territories where you're like, uh, who's, who's, you know, got the, the real issue here. So I don't know. And there's a lot of that. Like I just, I just had a one come out publicly where I, I figured it out. So these JavaScript URLs, right. That we all have to worry about every time we use, um, you know, an href, we have to <laughs> make sure it's not a JavaScript URL. Well, in Node, there's a native parser. In the browser, there's a native parser for URLs. But there's also a module on NPM called URL parse that has like 5 million weekly downloads that people happen to use also. And I just noticed that you put a space at the beginning of a string that you give it. It will tell you that it's um, like it's a JavaScript URL with a space at the beginning. It'll tell you that it's an HTTP or HTTPS URL in some cases. And I was like, well, this seems bad. And then I worked with the maintainer kind of to get that fixed. But it's like, is that a is that a risk? I mean, you should trim your own URLs, right? Yeah. Or yeah. But the standard library does the trimming for you. So it's like, I have prior art that shows that you shouldn't have to. And then it's like, well, is it a vulnerability in URL pars? I mean, he's not saying you should use this thing to assert the protocol of a, you know, a URL right. knows how to parse things. But it's like, well, it has a high impact if people are using it for that purpose. So it doesn't really fit like yeah. uh, with the current risk scoring metrics we use like CVSS and other things. So. I feel like this is just a new territory, this whole shared shared library vulnerability assessment space. It is pretty interesting. And libraries do comprise most of the application these days, right? Right. And that was like Adam Baldwin's like main point on his talk at Locomoco said. So <laughs> Yeah, and I I mean you think about most of like the high value CVEs recently too, it comes about because of exactly what you're talking about, right? Like that that intersection between hey, my custom code and the way that I'm calling these libraries, and even if the maintainer didn't mean for it to be used in that way, developers have a tendency to find those shortcuts or whatever it is and then use them, and then that's what get gets attacked. So, yeah, like in that case, it might almost be interesting to, to pull down, to do like some Git, 
spelunking and actually look and see, hey, where is this being used? Are there any cases where this would be like a sensitive problem? I, you know, it's, it, but it could also be wasted, right? Like we could find no instances of it ever being passed in that way. So it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it, it's a difficult issue, but you're right. Like that, that's where, that's where I, I see the industry going as far as like the bug hunters, right? Is, hey, where are those, those messy interactions between platforms, for lack of a better term, but between libraries and applications that can be taken advantage of? Yeah, there's there was this thing that was said about so about open source security, right? You guys might remember this, not to date you too much, but you remember somebody said something about open source security about eyeballs, like there was some eyeballs and shallowness, and I remember there was a quote out there that was like, "If given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow." Uh-huh. This was a thing, a reason for using like Apache or Nginx over a proprietary web server back in the day. Or, uh-huh. This is the reason why if you have like an open source library, potentially more people are looking at it. Therefore, it'll have better security than like a proprietary closed source library. And I think a lot of people kind of adopted this mindset. And um, I think I'm here to share that the reality is that there's a long tail of consumption when it comes to open source libraries and that it's not all grouped in just a few libraries. And that those that long tail of consumption means that lots of libraries get used a little bit and many of those are never looked at. I do in-person yeah. security training just like you know, when I ask developers, I say, how many of you are looking at the code of your third-party dependencies? I get zero hands every time, you know? Doesn't yeah. matter how many people are in the room. No one's looking. So if you just look a little, this is another good news for those, that, you know, those folks that are like, hey, I'm an offensive security person and I'm a pen tester and I'm looking to be relevant in the AppSec era or the product sec era. One thing you could do is you could get like a whole page of CVEs on your resume by just going and looking at the open source ecosystem security and reporting some vulnerabilities to us over at the work group. Yeah, actually, so we were having this conversation at work yesterday, which was about the fact that application, so I used application inspector on a few of our applications just in different languages, just to see how it sort of like stacked up. And what was cool was the, uh, and by the way, Seth, I think we had brought up the application inspector either a couple episodes ago or something like that, but yeah. um but anyways, it, it pointed out things like, you know, where authentication is occurring, but also like where networking is occurring. And then a kind of a light bulb moment where it was like, well, if we can run this on our libraries and it didn't have networking before, meaning like it didn't have calls that the, the, the library was making out before. And all of a sudden now it does. We can do a diff and an alert that says like, hey, this library's never made calls out to the web before. And now it does. You might want to take a look at that. And uh, just for like, you know, looking at like backdoored libraries, not necessarily insecure libraries, but more so just like little things that, yeah, might be stuffed in there to make that a malicious library. Yeah, I got uh, I got really lucky when around the time I joined NPM, um, Adam and John, who were both already at NPM and had built the node security project together. And they have been doing some of this behavioral analysis of modules that have been uploaded to the registry. So when you upload a package to the registry, a lot of people don't realize that that's not necessarily the same code that's on GitHub, right? So GitHub is a different company, we both know. Yeah. And, uh, different set of code. And then NPM has a, some kind of ball, tarball of stuff. And that's what you actually get and run on your computer. So a lot of the security program at NPM was uh, looking into analyzing what's in these tarballs and what is their behavior. So John and Adam did a bunch of work to start doing that analysis at scale within an NPM and saving those results. And then I worked on a GraphQL API where we're starting to surface some of those results. It's called NPM Insights, and it's in beta beta right now. And you can sign up and uh, get access um, to it. But 
The idea is just, yeah, historically, did this module ever do some of the things you're talking about? Touch the file system, you know, make network requests. And what are the deltas between the old behavior and the new behavior? Along with things like, has a maintainer changed? Does it use two-factor auth during publish? And other metadata you, you might care about. That's the idea behind that project. It's a super, you know, I think Adam was kind of hint, teasing at it and hinting at it, but it's interesting to hear that those are the sort of metrics being used to, um, well, and it kind of reminds me of like, the, uh, we had Kelly Robinson on last week. She was talking about um, stir and shake and they're basically kind of doing a similar thing where it's it's reputation based, but there's levels of your reputation and it sort of feels like a similar approach. There's levels of reputation and like potentially potential risk based off those uh, various metrics you just mentioned. So that's really yeah. Cool. Adam's Adam's really bright when it comes to this. So when I joined, I was like, all right, we'll figure it out, right? We'll figure out the trusted and untrusted modules. And Adam's like, we stand no chance. What we need to do <laughs> is provide the data to everyone, and then hopefully the crowd will make sense of it. So if we're publishing these insights, like, hey, these are the network requests for this particular version of this particular package. Hopefully somebody else builds something on top of that that does the correlation and says that's bad or that's good or those types of things. Yeah, I think there's a space there, like indicators as opposed to like he called I, it, I, like, he called actually, just, a compromise. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 and it's 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 almost like indicators instead of compromise of indicate. Well, they they are indicators of compromise for sure if you are seeing activity, but within a code base itself, um, like. I want to say there's indicators of exploitation or possibility, right? That that we can almost take advantage of when we're digging through something like a tarball or something else. As far as hey, it looks like this library is represented as you know an authentication library, and all of a sudden we're you know we're seeing you know data or like functionality that's not associated with that. Uh, it, it's a deeper level analysis, and it goes to static analysis. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Like, I was really, before I joined Adam's team, I was really focused on the source code itself. Like mm -hmm. when you author the source code, does it contain flaws? And that's the work I'm doing with the work group is we're looking at the source code level vulnerabilities. But Adam has been very focused on the runtime behavioral analysis, which is yeah. a lot of what, you know, what we're talking about now. It's like, when you run it, what does it do? And that's a whole different question, right? And a whole different challenge. I think a lot of people in the malware space know about that and they have corpuses and other, and other tools for detecting. So I, I think the biggest threat right now in the NPM ecosystem is that malware gets introduced and then downloaded. Not so much yeah. that somebody makes a mistake and accidentally has cross-site scripting in their plugin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about that all the time, right? Like it's the, you know, somebody takes over a dependency or what, whatever else, right? There's, and then introduces a malicious, yeah, yeah, malicious code in there to do something because they know that, hey, this project has, you know, 20,000 stars and 5 million downloads a week, right? Like, hey, that's a better target for me. And that's a better time investment as an attacker than it is to find XSS in a library somewhere that already exists. Let's just take it over and push our code out and everybody pulls it down, right? So, but yeah, and, well, okay. So, you know, I don't know if we've talked that out. Anything else on it? Like, I, I did want to dig a little bit. I'm interested in Ken's point of view because really he's got the author type stuff and we've got the run type stuff. Yeah. Ken? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, let me think about that. How about that? Also, sorry, <laughs> I was having some technical issues connecting. Like, my Bluetooth has gone wild. If you saw me shuffling around, that's why. Okay. So I've lost some of the, the conversation a bit. So I thought no, you were taking notes on what I had said that was inaccurate. No, no, I had to lift up. 
No, I was like trying to reshuffle my stuff and like lift up my laptop. I was actually lost connection on trackpad and uh, my AirPods. So apologies there. No worries. I, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no, you're looking forward to yeah, for I mean, it. kind of a bright future for, for security of code. Um, based on my experiences, you know, working with NPM and, and some of the teams that I've been able to meet through local MocoSec, I think that what's going to happen is something similar to what's happened in other spaces, right? I talk to developers about this often, which is, you know, who do you send your code to for performance review? And they go, what do you mean? I'm like, you know, you write all those nested for loops and stuff, and then you give it to the performance team, and then they find them and fix those for you. They go, no, we just don't do, you know, crazy stuff. And they go, okay, what about QA? Do you still give it to QA? And they go, no. We do automated QA. We got automatic code coverage. We catch regressions. And like ops, do you do you get your ops people? Is that who really handles like operations? No, we're trying to automate as much of that as we can. We got tools. We got Kubernetes as much as you feel positive or negative about Kubernetes. <laughs> you know? And it's like, if we could, I mean, we I'm showing these developers like what OWASP has created, the guidance we have around secure coding, you know, the stuff that Jim Manico talks about and others. And the developers are kind of looking at me like, this is the basics. I mean, there's, they're like, yeah, if we really cared, we're the developers, if we really cared about this secure coding, yeah, we could make this way better. We could build you guys way better tools. We could, if we could just get a little bit of traction with them. And once they decide, like the development community decides, like, okay, we'll do secure coding too, in addition to all these other things, it'll just be like a completely different world from a, from a productivity perspective as far as getting that code to be more high quality. So I, I think we're almost there. I think some of, some of us are trying to make that happen, but it's probably not going to be the same community. Um, that's currently doing all the security work at all. I think it's just going to be the development community doing, you know, better. Doing secure code. Yeah. Doing better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, again, I, I'm pretty cynical when it comes to this. <laughs> I, I mean, it like, it, and it's all, it all stems from dealing with really, really large old companies and uh, that like, they're still dealing with COBOL that's 30 years old, right? Like that, you know, there's no maintainer that's there anymore. And it's great that they, you know, that they start to talk about moving to Node or something else. But, you know, hell, at times, if I could get them to like a Java struts as opposed to, you know, COBOL, <laughs> I'd probably be happy um, just to something that's object oriented. Uh, but that's not always the case. So like, I agree because on the one side, I go to the conferences, I see what's going on and I see the possibilities. And, you know, I've talked about like, you know, building, you know, like the, the whole sputter thing that, you know, I did a couple of years ago that like where it's, hey, if we build these unit tests right, we don't have to worry about, you know, exploitation because we've already quashed it all, right? We've already, we've already identified the risks. The developers know better. We know that. As a security, you know, as an AppSec person, I know that the developers know better how that code is supposed to be used and what the risks are that are associated with it. Um, but what do you do in a situation where you're dealing with COBOL code, right? That the, the main developers, you know, they've passed away 10, 15 years ago and the company is struggling. And if we pull that out, the company uses, loses a billion dollars a year. Right? Like the, well, another, yeah, I mean, another question is, you know, are our software companies going to be replacing existing traditional businesses and those companies that don't become software companies and transform um, might not be able to compete with companies who are software. That's true. So yeah. I guess that plays itself out if that's, if that, if that holds well, true. 
Yeah, and that's like we're seeing that with like even with Tesla, right? Like that's, that's probably like one of those like disrupting companies that's popped up. It is a software company, right? Yes, they build cars. Yes, they do other things, but they like they build the software that runs all this stuff, and it's displacing. Like they're valued now more than what GM or whatever it is because of the disruption that they're pushing in that industry. So I wonder if like a bank or something else, you're going to have that same sort of. That, that same sort that same level of disruption like, well, like I, capital, I see that. one, capital one yeah. for example is a software company yeah that for sure no question yeah oh. but that I, like it, and I but I still go back to I know that those guys are using a mainframe right like I yeah. know like it, every bank that's out there uses that for batch processing and you know as much as they are a software company and they're trying to get away from that you know that on the back end there are processes that like would make you shake your head both as a developer and a security person because of, because of the industry in and of itself and how it's built. So, yeah, I, I do these trainings too. You know, I go out, I meet companies and maybe they do something with physical goods and maybe they do manufacturing and I meet the developer and he, he's been there since, you know, college and he's 60 and yeah. I'm trying to talk to him about secure coding and he's talking about mainframes. So, no, I, I've lived this reality as well, but again, that's I'm the focused. student that, that has their arms crossed. That's like, <laughs> I, we, there's always one. We've talked about this before. There's always one who's just like so cynical and so like whatever. <laughs> I don't want to be there, and you don't want them to be there. To be frank, to be frankly, you know, fairly honest about it, like you, you know, they just nobody's happy about the situation, and yeah, they're the person working on that thing that yeah can't that none of the training is applicable to and you're like well what do you do but i mean to be fair like here's here's a, a take on this though what what if that's fine what if those mainframes are just like surrounded by technology that is like the main cushion of and, and that's the bit that's changing and that's the cushion in front of that technology so that if something goes wrong it's like got levels right where you know the mainframes are essentially you know, they're working fine. And th there's a lot of stuff that, that makes sure that, um, that everything works seamlessly, but it's not, you know, those sp specific mainframes. Does that make any sense? Like, like there's layers of technology in front of it. And then like, is that a problem at that point? I mean, I, I, I think like you should definitely upgrade, you know, often, especially if you're under, if your your business, um, relies on, uh, so software in the sense of speed of delivery and changing um, to like different business goals. But like at the same time, you can do a lot of that with putting that cushion in front of those, which is what they essentially do. Right. Those mainframes. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah I I mean, it's not, the, it's not the same as it was. Right. I, I remember right. like the first, the first web front end that I dealt with when I was working at the bank, right. It was passing. I, I mean, basically there was a small proxy, but it was passing stuff directly back to the mainframe. Right. Like it was Directly, almost, yeah. yeah, I was almost treating it as like a, you know, a backend database or a backend web service that, uh, that just talked TN 3270 as opposed to speaking, you know, XML or whatever else. Right. And I know that a lot of that's been abstracted out because of IBM and everything that they do, as well as like everything that we're, we're talking about here. Um, so, but, you know, Ken, I, I would agree. We almost start to treat that as a library, like, you know, Ron or, you know, whatever, right? We're treating it as, hey, guess what? This is something we interact with, but realistically, it's just software on the back end that we interact with. And as long as we protect everything up front and we know how to, how to interact with it, what do we care, 
right? Yeah. When I was in the military, a good example of this is we had, we were like on the cutting edge with Windows exchange servers and domain controllers like Windows 2000, you know, we're just moving up in the world um, from NT. And anyway, so, uh, you know, so there's all this technology, this messaging technology, but at the end of the day, when you follow the line back far enough, I, I'm not kidding. There are these giant, giant machines um, on board the ship that uh, like, so there, there's giant machines in these giant racks. They have virtually no processing power, virtually no memory. They have some blinking lights and they run the most basic version of, you know, Unix that you've ever seen. And um, that was the underlying like underpinning technology to it all. And it actually worked really flawlessly because it was so simple and dumb and didn't, you know, there were other things around that, but those things were never the issue. All the other stuff like our routing and switching equipment from the Cisco to the Alcatel to like the, the Windows stuff, all that stuff constantly failed, constantly had issues, but not, not these old big buckets of junk, you know, that run like the most simple Nix version you've ever seen. So I got, I, I got a question for you, Ken, because I feel like you're years ahead of me in the, in this category I'm talking about. I, I was looking through some content on the internet and I ran across like these videos where it's just like you and an editor and a monologue of you showing every secure coding technique, like using node and express. And I think there was like other languages and platforms. They all like all the video preview, you know, screens look the same. Like it looked like you just went crazy at some point. We're like, I'm just going to tell everyone how to code securely in every platform I know and make a video out of it. I think that was the set cast thing at, at yep. one point. Yeah. Or just every, yeah, that's fun. That's funny. That was a lot of fun though. It was not easy to produce, but yeah, that oh, was super yeah, fun. How much time that must have taken like to just sit and do each of those videos it must have been hundreds of hours. Probably. Yeah. And it, like, you have to research all the different, um, cause like you work with express. So in those early days of express, there was just, it was weird trying to get security s- stuff in there. But what was nice is actually like Adam, Adam from NPM, Adam Baldwin had put out, um, and with the lift team had put out, um, like things. I don't know if I think it was forget what it was called. Maybe, maybe hey, helmet was back. Yeah. I think helmet was maybe back then available, but yeah, it was nice to have those different, but you got to test out those, those libraries and like, you know, configure them and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. Um, did it get I, a lot of what did you do with all those videos? Did they get viewed and did it make the change you were hoping for? I don't remember actually. Seth, do you, you, I, I, I'm just looking. They're still all up there, right? Oh, yeah. Still, yeah, yeah. If you you oh, can yeah. you can find them on the, the that old channel, right? Um, they're so unique they, in the way that they are very like the only other person I saw doing that was like Jim Manico was doing it in person, talking about really specific defensive techniques as it related to different coding frameworks but around that time when those videos were coming out i wasn't seeing i was seeing a lot of attack based still i see a lot of attack based videos those were like oh you know why is because i had spent a lot of time um doing attack related stuff right like um i think in the early days when i had my own blog that was technical i was doing a lot of burp stuff and a lot of like how to make things work and how to like it you know just modify burp and and use different attack tools and all this stuff and like um but that was just the natural evolution which is like kind of to your point back in the original part of this podcast where you, the two of you were talking about sort of the 
the progression of careers for people where it's like they start out maybe doing a little consulting pen testing and then eventually that splits off as an industry or as a career to like building tools for people and or building sorry product security that I believe is the term you use which is like you know maybe building two-factor auth on an app or whatever but anyways like as that progression happened um for me i realized like with all the clients that we had and i think seth as well like you get to a point where you're like let's just show people how to do this correctly because breaking stuff is no longer really it's not that it's not fun it's fun to do that but it's not it's not as rewarding i feel like as uh yeah yeah. Yeah. After after the 99th, you know, SQL yeah. injection or whatever, you're like, okay, yep, I like, yeah, let's let's move on. Oh, look, yeah. you're using Rails, right? And I, I I think a portion of that too, Ken, was like we we were starting to kind of build a you know a training platform, and it was kind of the yeah. first go to, right? But the amount of time that that it takes to actually script something like that up to your point, Ron, is pretty. Like it's intensive, right? To figure out, hey, these are, these are the small nuances that you need to know about this specific version of Express or this specific version of Django on how to eliminate, you know, or implement CSRF, right? It's it's not, yeah, it's not a trivial amount of time, right? And I, I remember Ken spending, you know, at least a couple of days a week on some of those videos to actually get them out and then produce, right? Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure they're still out there, right? So. Yeah, and actually, Ken Toller, who watches the podcast, shout out to him. He um, he actually made the jingle for the intro to those videos. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so that was uh, that was Ken Toller who actually did that. Yeah, I forgot all about these videos. It's funny, man. There's a lot of them. Oh, jeez. Yeah. 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 And so it's just I, yeah. I think with the with the developers, you know, when you when I ask now when I do these secure code trainings, I ask, you know, let's list ten vulnerability types that you guys can think of. And they usually list out like four or five vulnerability types, and then maybe some other information that sounds security related. And then I say, well, what's the what's a defense for you know DOM based XSS crickets? What's what SQL <laughs> injection uh, parameterization? Right, that's there. I go, okay. Did you look in your library and make sure that it really does parameterization? It doesn't do concatenation under the hood. What? Well, most libraries do, even the most popular ones for performance reasons. Like, what? Like, yeah, never mind. And you kind of go through, like, you know, the different categories. And the developers, once you tell them, like, well, yeah, you want, you know, contextual encoding or, you want, you know, whatever whatever the defense you want them to do is, then they just, you know, they write it down and they'll do it in the future. I think by getting that information to them in a, in a relevant way where they understand, like, enough about what the problem is, but more, like, what's a secure coding technique I need to use? Or how do I call the library in a way that's safe? But it, just getting out there and telling that to people, you know? It's a, you know it's what a, amazes me is you're absolutely right. It's like, um, so we've got some, la again, layers, you know, with ORMs. But ultimately, I have seen a lot of database administrators specifically requesting that you don't build in the protections that we talk about with, like, SQL injection because it is not performant, because it's not. And you're like, but, they, you know... I'm trying to get, it's hard without code to give a concrete example, but it's like, don't um, use like a, and there is a difference between parameterized and um, prepared. Prepared. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll say, well, you know, don't use a um, prepared statement. Um, it's not as uh, performant. And, you know, that kind of immediately gets you like, huh, I don't know if that's the right way. And then you have to go back and be like, well, the security community screwed up the concept between prepared and parameterized statements and then 
lead you down a rabbit hole of like, yeah, actually that's not the most performant and there are still safe ways to do this, but it, it challenges the notions that like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. There's some, there's some PRs out there in the JavaScript community on popular ORMs that have been around, you know, I saw one that was like four years of someone trying to get the under the hood changes made so that it didn't do concatenation because the API appeared to do something safer. And yeah. you know, for years it's going back and forth, you know, no, it's get rejected. doesn't have the coverage. Doesn't, you know, has these problems. It's like, yeah. Meanwhile, everybody's just shipping, right. Using the thing because that's what you do. That's what you do. Yeah, but getting getting the getting the technique into the hands of the developer and just getting that engagement where they start to care because these people build amazing things. I mean, think about how different it is to build a software application now using modern tooling than it was like even ten years ago when I was CTO of a company. I mean, it's worlds different and worlds easier to build things. So if we could get these same the kind of the meta language people, right? The people who build the things around a language that make a community a community. Tools like npm, other tools, if they could do something and they cared, they could build something way better than. The security community is capable of building, I think. Yeah, and it's funny because you had mentioned going into developers and asking them if they looked at the code of the libraries that they um they that they've implemented and zero hands coming up. And like if you look to your point about the ease of use, if you look at most of the libraries, most of the libraries that you're including, you go, you do what? You look at the README. Most of the README has like kind of the description of what you need. Maybe you'll go to the wiki because you know, maybe there's some more detailed information that you need on usage of the library, but that's about it. I mean and then in a sh very short period of time, you're up and running with like an app that does what you need to do. Oh, you need to do OAuth, you need to do SAML, you need to do authentication, you need to do, uh, I don't know, call out and upload some files to AWS or you need to spin up some infrastructure. Like, cool, we can do all of that in minutes with just like reading some readmes. You don't necessarily know anything about the code that's underpinning the tasks that you're taking on and you have no reason to really delve in deeply into the libraries but you can get you can get up to speed pretty quick on uh did we lose seth maybe i don't know i, don't know what I think happened. Your, your colleague neil uh said one of this one of the many smart things he's told me was you know uh, api example should be safe to copy paste like copy pasting shouldn't be considered bad right and right. it's secure but this this is very challenging in cases like redux where for a year and a half the default example contained injection vulnerabilities and if you go search on github i mean there's like you know, 10,000 plus copies of that code out there now. And right. that's not a library you can patch, right? So it's 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 it, it, it's hard to tell developers, like it's not safe to copy paste. You got to go and look at a library code, but there are solutions to this, like limiting your consumption of third-party libraries and, you know, coming up with some kind of allow list that has been in some way reviewed. Some companies are doing that. They don't just pull in all different types of dependencies. They pull in a specifically allowed list of dependencies and transitive dependencies that they know are safe. And then they oh, set up like yeah. assuming their own library server, like whether it be an npm server or um, Ruby yeah, there's tools like yeah, there's like there's a couple commercial tools like uh, Artifactory, Nexus, and then there's open source stuff in the npm world. We have Redashio, but yeah, people set stuff up that sits in line and doesn't allow you to pull in the the junk into your into your repos. So I on the I did have I did want to get to one question for you with React, like. Uh, Overall, um, I'm not very familiar with the various React. Like I'm at the very highest levels, mostly because of those talks at Locomoco and, and whatnot, like dangerously set inner HTML, those sort of obvious things. But like, um, it sounds like there's quite a bit to writing secure React code. Yeah. So here's what happened. 
yeah, Jim, Jim taps me and he goes, Hey Ron, you want to write some courses for synopsis? And I said, that sounds like fun. And he goes, okay, first one, you get to write one on react. Like, that sounds like a non-starter. I mean, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's like about a client side library that has like a single mechanism for updating the DOM and you write code that, you know, in JSX that just calls react create element a bunch of times and creates a tree, which then gets written to the DOM using one mechanism. So I'm like, do you want me to audit that mechanism? Like, is that what we're talking about here? <laughs> and I, and I, I started to really look into it. Um, luckily, I had the space to do that. Synopsis gave me some time to do some research before I did the writing, which I thought was brilliant. And yeah, I looked, looked into it. Yeah, <laughs> I looked into it, and it turns out, okay, um, yeah, you're manipulating the DOM, right? And React, client-side React. And there's a mechanism for doing the update, which is the you know create element call. Yeah, you can uh, you know use dangerously set inner HTML if you'd like to set the content of that element to an HTML fragment. And that's clearly dangerous. Dangerously right. set in HTML is an API that's labeled dangerous. But developers want more than one way to you know, get into the DOM. They want other escape hatches. And so as I looked at the React ecosystem, I noticed that developers had discovered other ways in the React library, such as refs, which return the underlying DOM node that's just been rendered back to the component. So you rendered it, you rendered it, you use the render path that has a protection that does automatic contextual escape, uh, contextual encoding. But now you get a ref back and that ref is a straight API to the DOM. So you can enter HTML, you can set the text content of a script element. You're back to all those same issues that you had when you wrote, you know, regular old code to talk to the, to the DOM and make, make it updates. So the usage of refs, I went, how prevalent is it? Well, 61% of the top 100 libraries use refs. 12% of the top 100 libraries use dangerously set inner HTML. There's also other things like find DOM node, which is just a method that you call in React that gives you direct access to a DOM, kind of like query selectors. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's just these other ways to break out of the update cycle in React and jump right back into editing the DOM. So I think the defense is you use linters and you configure them to look for these dangerous things at you know development time and integration time. And then also... You just you also use linters for all the typical, you know, DOM syncs, right? All the places where you get to introduce a script and right. possibly turn on content security policy and trusted types. Also good ideas. But yeah, in React, I would say the most defended app would be just like any, you know, thing you're trying to defend for DOM-based cross-site scripting. You know, if you could do uh, content security policy default source, you know, none, that would be great. And then you won't have any scripts. But yeah, <laughs> I think in, in React. Yeah, there's, there's, that, there's that very well-labeled escape hatch, dangerously set in our HTML, but then there's more subtly labeled escape hatches, like refs and find DOM node that uh, there's not as much awareness around it. And it's not as it's obvious. Like direct access to these these elements, and then you, yeah, you can shoot yourself in the foot. That's interesting. I and, Yeah, because I wasn't sure, again, I'm such a novice to React and haven't spun, spent nearly enough time doing it. That's interesting that they've they've given these that's a very like innocuous name i mean it makes sense right like you're the naming makes sense but yeah. but another thing that's happening is sorry a lot of people have linters turned on so they won't let them use let's say these dangerous things oh and so the developer is trying to use something dangerous and there's a linter it's like you can't but then what happens is they go off on the ecosystem and they go on npmjs.com and they find a library that does what they want to do right like put an svg on the page <laughs> really? yeah and then it's in that library code where the mistake is. <laughs> and typically your linter doesn't run on your node modules folder, right? It just yeah. runs your code. So you wrote code that's safe, potentially, but then you brought in a component via third-party libraries and under the hood, they're just dangerously setting inner HTML for you. Like there was literally one called React Safe oh, wow. and all it did 
was it was called React Safe, and it just took the text content that you put in there and put it directly into Dangerous to Set Energy to for you. <laughs> Wait, and it was it was called React Safe. Yeah, I got to find out. He might have taken it down because I've been telling people this for like a year. But That's amazing. Avoid the avoid the annoyance of having to set dangerously in HTML yourself, and instead safes you safely lets you set it. It's hilarious, and I'm so you. I, I feel like oh, that's so hilarious. For the attack, I'm so used to seeing that with functions are built into frameworks where it's called safe, um, yeah. but not like a separate library that yeah that decided to. Uh, so, sorry, I'm like talking and also desperately trying to find this. This uh, yeah, this is awesome. That's I'll so funny. In the show notes. I'll find it. So another another thing that's interesting with React, right, is you're writing this React app because you want to render it in the browser. And so over time, your React app keeps getting bigger. So it starts yeah. out as a meg, then it's 10 megs, next thing you know. So now you're talking about like dynamic imports or code splitting or doing something with your bundle to try to reduce the amount that you serve to the other person. You're using Webpack. But at some point, developers are like, this is crazy. For SEO reasons and for performance reasons, we need to start server-side rendering these React components. So now we're going to server-side render those React components? Well, now we're executing them in the node environment, right? Yep. You've got a whole new attack surface. And then now you've got server-side frameworks like Next.js where they're saying, hey, we got some hooks that will run server-side exclusively to allow you to get ready to initially render to then serve client-side and finish rendering. And people are doing things on GitHub, I noticed, like on the server-side, when their React component renders server-side, they're making direct SQL calls to the database to pull in data to the component, initially render it, serve it client-side, and have it render again. So now you're doing an audit of a React app and you're looking for SQL injection vulnerabilities, which is you know, not super. <laughs> so this attack surface just kind of keeps exploding when it comes well, to I, React. I, yeah, I'm even thinking like React native applications, right? The stuff that goes on in a mobile app, like again, that's a, it's a different surface like that you know, you've got like all the data protection issues and everything else that goes on inside of the mobile app that you're not as concerned about when you're running inside of a browser, right? And so uh, yeah, I, I know that there's more there. I know that there's more there that you're, you're going to want to deal with and you're going to be concerned about. Um, and, and has that come up as well? Like, I know that the React Native stuff has been, like, it's been a hot issue, right, for us uh, on the consulting side. Like, have you, have you dealt with that as much? I, you know, I haven't dealt with any client-side vulnerabilities when it comes to React Native apps. The ones that I've looked okay. at are the typical mobile application vulnerabilities, like you embedded your secrets in the client or you sent insecure communication channel between the client and server. More of yeah. that kind of thing. But I don't know of any, yeah, like direct injection attacks uh, that are prevalent in React Native. But I don't write a lot of React Native code. I, I mostly like web, write web-based React that uses React DOM. Okay, cool. All right. Well, good. I did post a, a link to that. Um, hey, to, to that library. Yeah. To, but I like Lewis. I, oh, I like Lewis's comment. I wanted to add it to the video because, <laughs> because yeah, that's basically what the thread I posted was. Um, yeah. It was just like, well, we'll add a warning. So, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's pretty funny. Anyways. Yeah. Interesting. That's very, I wonder if that's, you have to wonder if it's purposeful. Like I really just want to bypass, you know, like this security check that this lender's throwing a warning on, or is it just a lack of information, you know, where it's just like, well, I don't know. Um, can't do it this way. I can do it this way. So boom, like I've got a timeline to ship and guess what? In the next four hours I can get that done. 
So, you know, you got to wonder. Um, I don't feel like I, I genuinely, tr maybe I'm trying to be optimistic, but I, I think it would, feels like it would probably be more likely. It's just, I want to get something working. You know, I just know that that's usually the, the, the burden, right. It's just like getting things going. So, yeah, I, I don't, and I don't, I think that, yeah, like if you see a warning in your linter and it's like, what dangerously, what, I don't know what this is. I just want to do the thing. Oh, what is this? It fixes it. Cool. I'm moving on. You know, I don't have time for this. I got to get this. Yeah. Up. Yeah. yeah. And I like, yeah, I, 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 I'd, I'd be in agreement there. Cause I, I feel like most of the vulnerabilities and, and Ron, I think you were talking about this, right. Is when you're saying that, Hey, when you tell the developers and you teach them, they just go out and do it. And they usually do it in a better manner than we do coming in as security yeah. people. Right. But it's, it's the same issue that we're having is that they've got timelines, they've got, you know, releases that they've got to put out. They've got features that they're trying to build and we haven't given them the tools to do that securely. And I know this was uh, Jim's big, like when we had him on, you know, he's like, Oh, there's going to be this great framework. That's going to take care of all the security issues for us. Right. And eventually developers are going to use that. But again, I was, I was cynical, but that, that's fine. Right. Like we'll get over that. Um, when we give them the right tools and we, we educate them, they seem to, to naturally take that on. And it's less of a concern for us at that point. We're looking for, more edge cases than we are the fact that hey SQL injections everywhere, right? Yeah, giving giving developers uh, secure API and then limiting their ability to get outside. So one of the things the React team is doing is they're actually looking into uh, putting trusted types into version seventeen. And I don't know if you guys have been tracking trusted types development, but <laughs> I'm a big fan. It's uh, if you can if they can manage to do that. I mean, it's sort of a moot point that there's all these script injection uh, escape hatches because none of them will function. Yeah. So React itself will do the right thing and use trusted types. And then if you try to do something weird with refs or some other bypass, yeah, you're just going to end up, you know, throwing exceptions. So, yeah, but like, okay, that's great. But then you think about, okay, this developer that's written this app and it's running in production and all of a sudden the React release just kills the app. What are they going to do? <laughs> well, they're going to roll back, right? Or they're going to fork, right? You know? So yes, it like yeah. there's a future there. They'll get to it eventually, but the initial like it's so painful, right? You're making me feel so naive today, Seth. I feel <laughs> I, I'm not I, trying to, right? Like you're uh, salty today, Seth. No, the thing is, Seth deals with. I think reality. Seth has been dealing with reality, yeah, too long. No, <laughs> yeah. he's he's just he's dealing with these. The, I mean, from a consulting's perspective, it was more often like. Yes, it was more fun to deal with sort of the like modern companies, but it was, was more of a more frequent to deal with what, you know, Seth's talking about, or you're just, it's just an amalgamation of crap that just, you know, that seems to processes just, and technologies and cultures that just don't yeah. combine to make it very difficult to. to so what I'm saying, forward. yeah, is I agree and I'm looking forward to it, but on the ground, we're just, I'm here for the future with good news, Steph. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming eventually, or I'm just going to join Stefan and become a nihilist and just go, whoop, we're done. Right. You know, I don't know. It's hard not to be cynical at times. That That's what I'm getting at. Right? You know, we have some reality too. You know, like NPM doesn't have infinite resources, but we have a lot of users. Sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, we have occasionally something will come up in our code that needs help. And we've got some of the most talented JavaScript developers on earth working at NPM, and they typically come up with a really quick fix 
to something if there is a need, but the security team jumps in as well and ships PRs and attempts to, you know, where we can help, you know, we're, we're not as good at developers as the actual developers who are building some of this stuff. But if we can, if we can give them a PR and a unit test and we don't lower code coverage and they can merge it, that's the easiest way to communicate with our development teams. So some yeah. of this, you know, security can level up if they want to participate. I agree. Like, uh, it, yeah, because there's actually most of the time now I think about it, the security vulnerability comes down to like one line of code. Hmm. Um, so you can make simple changes and throw up some unit tests and be like, here's the, and, and they can always just review and say like, look, make a change here to be this. And you're like, cool. And then you just ship it and deploy it. Like security should, you're right. I mean, I think that's the evolution, that's the evolution of a, a good AppSec person. And that's why we talk about having those fundamental skills of understanding things like networking and, you know, the OSI layer, but also like programming, understand how to program. You don't have to be the best programmer in the world, but you need to be able to read and write software for this very good, for this very specific reason. Um, let me obviously be on source code reviews and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, like you should be able to contribute, like level up. Yeah. Help out. Well, that, I, I mean, there was, there was recently actually this came up, right? Like, I, I think I tweeted out about it, but it was like the, like, it's really easy as a security person to walk in and say, hey, you know, there's this issue, go fix it, right? Like, and we always deal with this, you know, on the consulting side as well, right? Like, hey, we found this exploit. This is how you should fix it. As a security person, you want to really know what it's like, actually go out and try to fix one of those in a code base that's 20 years old, right? And it, you're like, Oh crap! Why? Well, yeah, exactly. It's not an easy thing to ask, you know, a developer to go and spend what what could be like four or five days, as much time as it took you to find like twenty issues in the code base. They may only be able to fix one or maybe half of one of those issues, and along with all the other pressures that go into it, it's it, it's just not an easy task. But it'll make you better as a security person to realize what's going on underneath the hood. And like Dr. Justin Collins, I don't know if he likes being called yeah. Dr. Justin Collins. Doctor. Just call him Dr. Justin Collins. Just Dr. Dr. Collins. Collins. Dr. Beef. Dr. <laughs> President Beef. Dr. President Beef. Yeah, he, I mean, he talks about the, the humble side of this, which is, yeah, even with a really great AppSec team, you're not going to be able to jump into other people's code bases and services and ship the fix in every no. case. Right? And you're going to need these developers to just understand the defenses and then apply them because... You can't, you can't do it. I mean, occasionally I can help out at NPM, but there's definitely cases where I'm like way, way, way beyond my depth with some of this tooling that uh, they've built. Yeah. Yep. Cool. I almost, now that you're saying that, sorry, I know we're about to jump off because we've gone over for a while, which I really love because it's been a great conversation. Um, I was just thinking of like training that would be, because we talked about training before, training that'd be super realistic would be kind of cool if you could just like do a couple days or a few days of like, simulating an actual day-to-day -day work, you know, and then like interrupting it with different security issues. And then like, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking that would be kind of like, honestly, making it, make it training that's so realistic and so situational and feels like almost like you're part of theater in a way, you know, like where, but you're actually having to solve uh, issues and sort of see how these things crop up. That would be, that would be really fun. It'd be really, really an interesting type of training. I haven't seen anything like that before, personally. You're trying to, you're trying to fix cross-site scripting and get the unit test to pass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, hey, quick question. Does this content security policy look good? Yeah, you're exactly. Like, yeah. Stuff like, no, no, no. yeah. 
situationally, like that's exactly what comes up. So, so there is that there is like, there's the Joe's versus pros that is out there. That's very similar to that. Right. Like that's, Hey, here, we're, we're trying to teach these people about security issues. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's more network related, right. They'll, they'll turn over something to you that has like outdated Apache and Nginx running on it with specific vulnerabilities and, you know, Hey, you've got to keep this stuff up and running while somebody else attacks it. Uh, And so there's this, this whole kind of, uh, you know, aspect of, Hey, this is real life. And at the same time, you have to answer calls and support somebody on, you know, Hey, the voice, the VoIP isn't working or something like that. So fix real issues that introduces some of that, but I, it's not from a developer perspective. Right. Um, and I think, I think you're right. It would be really interesting to actually see that happen or to build something like that where, Hey, you've got this feature that needs to be released and it, you know, you got a day and a half to put it out, but at the same time, here's a security issue that we found that's super critical. What are you going to do? Right. Cause if you don't, if you don't release both, you don't like pass or whatever else, but if you get exploited, I, yeah, it would be, it'd be fun to actually see. I don't know if I could handle the stress of that. Right. But you know, it's, it's, I'm attempting to do something in this arena, at least uh, with, I've done a lot of workshop-based training as well. Uh, just plain uh-huh. software development training. I did that yeah. for a while. So one of the things that I'm going to do in Santa Barbara, actually, this next weekend is I'm doing an OWASP kind of uh, one-day free event on the weekend. And what I'm going to have is I'm going to have a uh, code that has a vulnerability in it. And when you clone it, the, the linter will be telling you that there is an issue. And then what I'll be talking about, like, you know, what the vulnerability type is and what the common defensive pattern is. And the hope will be that then the audience can clone the repo, run the, run the tooling to see the error, fix it, and then have the test pass. And yeah. Sounds like maybe a little bit too optimistic to, to pull off, but we'll, we'll see how many people want to do it. We got like 15 people signed up. And then I'm going to be giving a version of that at Locomocosec, how to cool. find, find vulnerabilities in third-party components and how to remediate them and how to audit you know, relatively large React and Node applications and do Sweet. the That's awesome. Yeah. Well, like if I can uh, get my tickets all sorted and get my travels sorted, I'll see you there then. Now, wait, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so if you've never heard of it, Seth, no, I won't go into it. Cool. Well, Ron, thank you for joining. I feel like we could go on for another hour, if not Sorry. more. Yeah. So I know I'm um, like, I have a meeting at, in like eight minutes and I'm like, ah, I just want to uh, keep going. Yeah. 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 But we appreciate it. Let's have you back on sometime. Cause I like this conversation has been really good. You know, it, it helps me to realize that there's a future out there that doesn't involve COBOL, but you know, whatever, right? Like what in Hawaii, come see. In Hawaii, yes. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's been super informative. Uh, let's keep in touch and uh, yeah, I'll get this posted, you know, shortly, right. Like later this afternoon for the other channels. So see you guys. Yep. All right. Thank you everyone for watching. Thank you, Thanks. Ron, for your time. All right. Bye.